What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Protests rage coast to coast as Americans demand justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other black citizens who died at the hands of police. Today on our podcast, two powerful interviews on the two American crises rocking the nation and what lies beneath. Merck CEO Ken Frazier on the black experience in 2020. This African-American man who could be me or any other African-American man is being treated as less than human. And the relationship between race and economic opportunity. In good times when the community is quiet, we can ignore it. We can go about doing what we believe is in our economic self-interest. But in the long run, what's in our enlightened economic self-interest is that for all Americans to feel like they're participants in our economy. Wes Moore, author, veteran, activist, and CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, speaks out on protests and violence in the push for social change. There will never be peace nor calm nor tranquility without justice. I stand by the calls for peace. But where is our collective pain supposed to go in the absence of justice? It's Monday, June 1st, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Small and large cities across the U.S. witnessed the largest public demonstrations this weekend since the 1960s. In light of these events, Squawk Box today aimed to tackle the systemic issues beneath the unrest, racism, income inequality, and a global pandemic that could make the economic divide even deeper. We start the podcast today with an idea proposed by guest Robert Johnson, the founder of Black Entertainment Television and longtime investor. Johnson suggests that now is the time for the United States to pay $14 trillion in reparations to Black Americans to atone for slavery. I think this country, as we saw with the riots in 68, now it's 2020, we will see this happen time and time again. So my requests to the CEOs, and I'm sure they will understand this. Now is the time to go big. Short answers to long, horrific questions about the stain of slavery are not going to solve the inequality problem. We need to focus on wealth creation and wealth generation And to do that, we must bring the descendants of slaves into equality with this nation. That brings us to our interview with Ken Frazier, CEO of the $203 billion pharmaceutical giant Merck. CEO since 2011, Frazier hit national awareness in 2017 following the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. At the time, many American CEOs were on several White House advisory boards, bringing together corporate leaders from different sectors to advise the Trump administration on policy and the economy. The Monday morning after the Charlottesville event, Merck's corporate Twitter account released a brief statement that Frazier was resigning his role on a manufacturing advisory council. Frazier wrote he felt a responsibility to take a stand against intolerance 
and extremism. Ken Frazier's grandfather was born into slavery in South Carolina in the late 1850s. His father was a janitor in Philadelphia, and he was the first business leader to speak out after Charlottesville. Others followed, and the CEO advisory councils, as we knew them at that time, were disbanded. The Merck CEO joined Squawk Box today with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew. Ken, uh, we're privileged to have you this morning. Um, you have uh, been outspoken on a lot of these issues over the past several years, but we have not seen something like this in quite some time. And uh, as, as, as a leader, as a CEO, as a father, wanted to uh, just get your thoughts to begin on, on what you're seeing and, and, and what you're telling uh, both your employees and your family. So first of all, Andrew, thanks for having me on this morning. Uh, I was on this network uh, less than a week ago talking about what our company is doing to help with the crisis created by the pandemic in terms of vaccine research and antiviral research. And here we are a few days later facing another crisis of a quite different uh, dimension inside our company. Uh, the first crisis, I think we can say, caught us by surprise uh, with the virus that emanated uh, from China. This crisis has been brewing for hundreds of years, and uh, we're going to have to really step up to it. So to answer your question, I would say, first of all, there's a huge amount of pent-up anger uh, among many people in the African-American community as a result of the George uh, Floyd death. And I'd like to just try to explain maybe to some viewers what the source of some of that anger is. And I'll start by saying, uh, when you look at that videotape, uh, and we've all seen it over and over again, what that videotape shows is a, a police officer, a 19-year veteran of the police force in Minneapolis, uh, along with three other of his colleagues, uh, with, a, with a person who's handcuffed and on the ground being held down by three officers. The officer has his knee on this person's neck. Uh, if you look at that officer's face, uh, you see no expression. Uh, you can tell this man is not a threat at all because the officer who has his knee on his neck actually has his hands in his pockets. You have a person saying, you know, I can't breathe. I'm, you know, I'm dying. Uh, eventually, in complete fear, he cries out for his mother. He says, Mama. There's a crowd around saying, take your, your knee off his neck. One officer's just holding the crowd back. So what the African-American community sees in that videotape is that this African-American man, who could be me or any other African-American man, is being treated as less than human. And I think what really caused the spark that set all this off is what is the reaction of the officials to what I just said? So you now have this videotape. Uh, and for four days, there's no action. No one thinks that this is worthy of even putting the officer under arrest, which is the threshold step in our criminal justice system. It isn't an indictment. It isn't a criminal trial. It's not a conviction. You can do all the investigation. You could do the autopsy. But what the community saw was until they went out into the streets, this officer was not even going to be, or much less the other officers, even arrested for what was clearly inhumane treatment of a citizen. Ken, you know, we're seeing a, a lot of CEOs come out um, and put out statements, uh, Business Roundtable over the weekend, and so many other uh, CEOs and corporate leaders doing the same. What do you think companies should be doing at this point, and, and, and is there something to be done, frankly, beyond the press release? 
I think there's a lot to be done beyond the press release. I think every time we have one of these situations, and you can go back almost 30 years to the Rodney King videotape, uh, you can look at all these other issues. You can look at the Eric Garner situation in New York. There were two situations in Minneapolis, a guy named Philando Castile, who's, you might remember his fiance videotaped or video streamed uh, uh, the, the incident where he was shot. Another guy named Jamar Clark shot in the head. These things happen over and over again. Freddie Gray, the, these things happen over and over again. And when there's unrest, people put out statements. They put out platitudes. They say, this is terrible. We decry racism. Uh, we believe that we ought to build a just society. I think business has to go beyond what is required here. It has to go beyond just statements. I think, for example, we know in this country that there's a huge gap between the number of jobs that existed before the pandemic. There was some, something like 12 million unfilled jobs in this country, and there are 5 million inner city and other African-American uh, kids who want access to the economy. They want to be participants. They want to be citizens. They want to be consumers. What they lack is the education. They lack the training. And there are opportunities for programs like, there's a program called Year Up. I'll just use them as an example. Uh, Gerald Chervagian runs that program. And what they do is they take some of these kids and they put them with a six-month intensive training program. And then they become interns for six months. And then guess what? They graduate and they become productive citizens. I think businesses have to use every instrument at their disposal to reduce these barriers that existed. I heard the prior conversation about the legacy of slavery. I heard the prior conversation about reparations. The fact of the matter is there are, in fact, barriers that are faced by African Americans. Even though we don't have laws that separate people on the basis of race anymore, we still have customs. We still have beliefs. We still have policies. We have practices that lead to inequity. And I think we all know that. In good times, when the community is quiet, we can ignore it. We can go about doing what we believe is in our economic self-interest. But in the long run, what's in our enlightened economic self-interest is that for all Americans to, to feel a participant, to feel like they're participants in our economy. You know, I'll just say, joblessness leads to hopelessness. Hopelessness leads to what we see in the streets. In the inner part of our country, hopelessness leads to what we have in terms of the opioid epidemic. Business can step up and can provide the leadership that I think our country needs. Ken, you know, we did talk to Bob Johnson in the last hour, and he did, he did make reference to a position in favor of, of reparations. What do you think of that idea? I think the fundamental question is, do we do more than we're required to do to actually give people full access to participating in our society. What I said before, I mean, I think business has the means to eliminate some of the barriers to full participation. We have the ability to eliminate some of the, uh, the inequities in our society. Uh, we can see those inequities and disparities in education. Uh, we can see them in employment. We can see them in housing. Uh, we can see them in health care. We can see them in the criminal justice system. And I think fundamentally what business can do, whether you want to call it reparations or not, I think we can step up to address in today's world the continuing results of years and years of racial prejudice in this country. You know, I don't want to be autobiographical, but I'm going to step across here and make one point here. Please. You know, I get to sit on CNBC and have this conversation with you because of one 
fundamental reason, and that was when I was growing up in the inner city of Philadelphia, the social engineers in Philadelphia at the time when Dr. King was leading the protest in the 1960s, for reasons I don't yet understand, decided to take a few inner city black kids, put them on a bus, make them ride 90 minutes to different schools to get a rigorous education. My class had 1,400 kids in it. There were nine African-American kids. I know for sure that what put my life on a different trajectory was that someone intervened to give me an opportunity to close that opportunity gap. And that opportunity gap is still there. We're not asking people to give everybody handouts, but we need to acknowledge that there are huge opportunity gaps that are still existing in this country. I apologize. No, no, you do not apologize at all. Uh, Becky, Becky's got a question for you, Ken. What you're talking about with these apprenticeships, uh, with these internships, what does it look like at a company? Because I think you're right, opportunity changes everything. We, we've heard several people talk about this this morning, including John Hope Bryant. What, what, what have you modeled at your own company? What would you like to see other companies model? Well, I gave one example with this program that we work with. It's called Europe. And what they do is they take these talented, motivated inner city kids, and for six months, they take them through a finishing school. They have to show up on time every morning. They have to dress a certain way. They have to learn certain skill sets. And after that six months, they graduate, and they get placed into internships, entry-level jobs. We're not putting people in charge of our laboratories, obviously. But these are important jobs. And if they succeed in their six-month internship, they get hired. There are lots of programs like this. Uh, you know, this, this program focuses on kids, younger adults. There are other programs. In a, another issue in our society is the reentry of people uh, who serve time, who've been incarcerated. We have lots of people like that. And the, and the fact of the matter is if we don't try to create opportunities for these people to be employed, as I said before, joblessness creates hopelessness. Ken, you're, you're an example of one out of I don't know how many people that, that grew up when you did. And, and as you say, you were fortunate enough uh, to have someone come in and, and actually intervene in, in your situation. So, I, you know, listening to Robert Johnson, in one fell swoop, I can see how we need, we need to, to equalize the ownership of assets in this country. And at the same time, Bob said a lot of bureaucratic half measures are just going to take too long. And I'm coming back to financial literacy and, and ways to do it organically. And, and whether, I mean, is that still, that's still something we have to do? Because I can't imagine that, that reparations is, is necessarily going to be politically palatable like next month or, or this year. I, maybe I'm wrong. I agree with you. I think the word reparations, it, look, the reality of the world is trying to solve these problems through the political system is very tough. We are such a polarized, divided, fractious people right now. Um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is we all live in our enclaves. Uh, we all talk to each other. Uh, we go to the same country clubs. We go to the same churches and mosques and, and, and synagogues. We listen to the same media. And all of these things tend to harden us and harden our hearts against people who are different from us. So the fact of the matter is I don't believe we'll be able to get anything like that through our political system. That's why I come back to the fact that leaders in the business community can be a unifying force. They can be a, a source of opportunity. They can be a source of understanding. Again, our society is more divided than it's ever been. We live in our own separate camps and enclaves. 
you could actually argue that the workplace is the last place in America, besides the military and maybe sports, where people can't choose who they associate with. So we as business leaders can step up and solve many of these economic problems for people. And to your point, financial literacy is critical. Education is critical. That is the great equalizer. We always say we're a land of opportunity, and opportunity in a knowledge economy comes through education and training. You know, the way to do it, and, and I, I'm not, I don't want to keep harping on this, but this program that, op, that, that it's a 501c3 I'm involved with gives $500 to every, to every high school student, and then every week there's financial literacy courses, and, and they have to invest it. It has to go into whatever they want to do, bonds or stocks or ETFs, and I mm-hmm. can just, I mean, it, it, it seems like baby steps, though, again, Ken. And listening to Bob, I was like, you know what? We could do this for the next 50 years, and we're still not going to get to where we want to be unless you did something Absolutely. big like Bob. But, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to do what at least you can work with on, right now. You can start this. But it, it's frustrating because it does seem like baby steps, and we've been doing programs like this for, for a while, and, and it, it's hard to make it. You know, we, we want progress more quickly, and obviously we needed more progress than we've gotten so far. I agree, but I think it's important for us not to be discouraged. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Andrew. Right. No, no. Ken, Ken, I just wanted to ask you, as a business leader, you know, you're talking about the things that business can do, and, and to some degree this is also a political issue um, and requires um, uh, the political will, frankly, to, to, to create real change. And the question I would ask you is what you think the role of a business leader should be in the context of the politics of this. You know, companies lobby for lots of different things on behalf of their companies. And the question is whether this should be one of them, and if so, how to do that in such a polarized world. Well, I think, you know, business, we have the business roundtable, we have other organizations. I think collectively, business can point out, for example, that we have this 12 million unfilled jobs and we have all these people over here who have no skills. Why don't we as a society, including through government programs, focus on those people to train them? And again, today's conversation is just about what's happened in the last few days and we're reacting to that now. What we have to guard against is that when the streets quiet down, When the vandalism stops, when the protest stops, uh, when the looting stops, a lot of people are going to go back to their normal lives. And they're going to say, you know, frankly, how do I maximize my self-interest? When when I hear a lot of people on TV deploring these acts of destruction and vandalism and, and looting, and they're right in that regard, because there are few cynical people in the protests who are saying, let me do what's in my self-interest. Let me grab what's mine. I just think we have to ask ourselves, are they the only people in our society who simply say, let me maximize my self-interest at the expense of others or at the expense of the common good? So I think business needs to go to the seat of government, not only for its own economic self-interest in the short term, but also to think about how to create a society that's going to actually be good for business. We can't have this toxic environment for much longer. Ken Frazier, I want to thank you this morning for your insight, uh, your candor, your your vulnerability, uh, and your sense of hope throughout all of this. And uh, we're grateful but, for it. So thank you, Ken. Thank you, Andrew. Can I just, can I just close by Appreciate saying 
We are now facing Please. two storms in this country, the pandemic and the civil unrest. Those storms won't be here forever. They will pass. And then the question is, are we going to rebuild this country together? Or are we going to go our separate ways again as we have in the past? The fact of the matter is no one of us can rebuild this great country. And the good news is none of us has to do it on our own. Together, we could actually make this the country that stands for the ideals that have always been behind it. So thank you very much for having me. When Squawk Pod returns, author, entrepreneur, activist, and CEO of the poverty-fighting Robin Hood Foundation, Wes Moore, he continues the discussion about racial and economic inequality in the United States. We have to understand that when we're talking about policing within the United States, it's not just simply about how do we give people better training. It's also about how are we strengthening laws of accountability. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. After Merck CEO Ken Frazier's moving interview, Squawk Box continued the conversation about the journey to justice and equality. Here's Becky Quick. Let's bring another voice into this important conversation that we've been having this morning, uh, all through the course of the morning. Wes Moore is the CEO of Robin Hood. That's a nonprofit that addresses poverty in New York City. He also is the author of several books, including one that's called The Other Wes Moore. It's about uh, a gentleman who grew up, uh, he was born just a few blocks away, a year apart from Wes. He was also named Wes Moore, um, grew up in very similar circumstances, but obviously you see the Wes Moore we're talking to today, the other Wes more wound up in prison. So Wes has spent a lot of time kind of thinking through how and why we end up in these positions and what we need to do as a society to make sure that everyone has equal opportunity. Wes, I want to thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks so much, Becky. Good seeing you. Thank you. It's good to see you. Maybe you can pick up where Ken left off, just where we are right now, what we need to be doing and how we make sure that we don't forget about this when the streets quiet back down. Well, I, I think we have to consistently remember why these protests are taking place in the first place. Uh, and, and frankly, it's not just about what happened to Mr. Floyd. It's about the fact that Mr. Floyd and the taking of his life is part of a much larger string of incidences of violence that is taking place against the black community. And while repeated requests and demands for action that are taking that have been made, there really has not been the level of sustainable or aggressive movement to be able to address it. And it's not just about this piece on policing. Policing is is is, is one aspect in the way that we have seen systemic racism show itself within our society. It's also everything from when you're looking at housing assets when you're looking at poverty rates, when you're looking at COVID-19 and the fact that COVID-19 has not just impacted the, the black community at double the rate, both in, terms of, both in terms of transmission and also in terms of death rates. It's this idea that people are looking for a sense of urgency and not pacification. And so when you're watching these singular incidents that happen, like the one with Mr. Floyd, when you're watching a, 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 a 40-year-old man who is put under the knee of a police officer for over nine minutes, 
a man who at first is, is screaming that he can't breathe, and then some of his final words on this earth were him calling for his mother, a grown man calling for his mother, who, by the way, she died two years ago. And seeing this on camera, it's important to understand that it's not just about this incident, but about what that is doing. It's showing how short the wick is in our society and how these singular instances can cause a massive level of destruction and unearthing if we're not being serious about dealing with the core issues that people are screaming about. So how do we deal with those core issues, Wes? I think we have to be able to be as deliberate with dealing with the solutions as we have, as, as our large society has been as deliberate in dealing with the fact that we have so many systemic inequities. Uh, you know, when, when we look at when we look at everything from employment rates, wealth rates, health disparities, et cetera, we, we can't pretend like these things have not been have been an accident. Many of these things that we're looking at, these have been historic, these have been laws that have been passed, and we're watching the implications of it show itself every single day. We, we can't understand the way we look at ghettoized societies, for example, without understanding the history of redlining and without understanding the history of discriminatory lending policies and discriminatory housing policies and how all these various things then line up into the level of economic and social and health disparities that we see within our society. We also, if we're you know, talking specifically about the element of, of policing, we have to understand that there are heroic people who are in the uniform every single day, who are not running away from the problem, but every day because of both their jobs and their moral responsibility are running to problems every single day. You know, I remember as, as I'm a combat veteran and I remember with the 82nd Airborne Division and I remember in Afghanistan, you know, I was deploying to areas that I didn't know anything about I couldn't point to on a map a couple of years earlier, but I was being asked to go into communities and go into areas with my flak vest and my Kevlar and my weapon in my hand and asking people to trust me. We have to understand that when we're talking about policing within the United States, it's not just simply about how do we give people better training. It's also about how are we strengthening laws of accountability? How are we making sure that when these things happen and when these incidents happen, that when people are demanding for justice, that that is not just going to continue falling on a level of deaf ears from the protection of, of, of laws that are in place to not necessarily support the communities, but are more in place to support the officers. And so the way we're going to do this is to be able to have a really holistic conversation, the law enforcement community, our actual community, and to be able to pull people together to say, we understand the problem. We understand that simply nibbling around the edges is not going to get us to the solution that we need. And we have to work this out once and for all so we don't just continue having these conflagrations that show themselves in our society as a distinct reminder of the levels of inequity that sits with our society still. Wes, what you're talking about is so deeply ingrained and so complicated and so complex. And I think people are kind of reeling after this weekend and, and the events of the last several weeks, last several months, and, and trying to find ways to come up with something that makes them feel better right now. What you're talking about is much more complex um, and, and, and much more lasting. How, how do we take this, this moment, this emotion, and, and if there were, let's say, two things on a national level that you would like to see done, what, what would be the first things that we should really focus on to try and, and break away at this inherent racism and this inherent inequity that's been built up in the system? You, you, you bring up such an important point, right? Because I, I think that that's, that's what 
that's what I think many people are searching for right now. It's, it's this idea of, you know, how do we return back to a sense of, 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 of calm and stability and tranquility? Um, and I think part of the answer is I think we all must understand in our own hearts and on our own actions that there will never be peace nor calm nor tranquility without justice. We have to understand, we have to understand that, that you know, because I, I, I am all for, and I stand by the calls for peace, but where is our collective pain supposed to go in the absence of justice? And so I think on the, on the individual level, we have to be able to call this out and say the names of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and all the other incidents that have taken place in just a short period of time. And these are the ones that were that we know about and were filmed and captured, right? In such a short period of time and acknowledge the fact that this is not exaggeration. This is not hyperbole. This is not just people starting stuff up. These are real true things that the black community has been dealing with and continues to deal with every single day and how it manifests itself. But we also have to understand that it is never just going to be about the policing aspect. The policing aspect has to be addressed. But we also have to understand the fact that we are talking about economic inequity and economic injustice. And when we address that issue, when we address those collections of things in concert, then we know we're actually gonna to move towards a greater sense of not just stability, but actually living up to the greatest ideals that this country proudly laments. I think what black America is asking for is for this country to love black America in the same way that black America has always historically loved this country, where we feel just as much a sense of ownership in its building, we feel just as much of a sense of ownership in its economic prowess, we feel just as much a sense of ownership in its cultural prowess, we feel just as much a sense of ownership and pride in this nation that we all collectively built together. And I think the thing that's now being stressed and, and, and spilled out onto the streets is we just wanna make sure that everybody understands and everybody appreciates the fact that these levels of inequities just cannot continue if we are going to be a unified nation. I think it was Ken Frazier who made the point today that, that these things can kind of get swept under the rug, particularly when there are good economic times. Uh, but what we're watching right now are, are some of the toughest economic times. And watching the economic impact of coronavirus and the, the lockdowns around the nation, I, I just wonder what you've seen in the neighborhoods that Robin Hood ser serves right now, what kind of economic pain you're seeing and what you're hearing from the people um, who, who are dealing with some of the worst of this economic pain. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the levels of impact and economic impact that coronavirus has had on, on our communities has been absolutely devastating. Uh, you know, we're in, even prior to COVID-19, even prior to COVID-19, around 40 for over 40 percent of people could not afford a four hundred dollar emergency shock with cash. Well, that shock is here and it's a lot more than four hundred dollars. Even prior to COVID-19, about 50 percent of New Yorkers lived in poverty for at least a year over the past five years, right? I mean, over the past four years, half of New York, of New York City lived in poverty for at least a year over the past five years, over the past four years. And that was prior to COVID-19. Now, since COVID-19, there's another stat that continues to keep me up at night. It's this reality that 22% of people that have lost their jobs in COVID-19 were already living in poverty before. So, i.e., that's the working poor. 
Those are people who are working, working full jobs and still living in poverty. And so I think what, what we have seen is that it's not that COVID-19 has, has, has exposed something that wasn't there. It's actually really drawn the, the curtain and allowed people to understand what was there already and now completely exacerbated it, where we're seeing the impacts, both the health impacts and the economic impacts on the communities that we serve uh, is, 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 is not just double, but the pathway back to being able to come to a true level of economic stability and a true level of upward economic momentum has been stunted. And in many cases, what the feeling is, it's not just been stunted for a short-term basis. One of the biggest challenges we have with the impacts of COVID-19 is we're just not sure what the bottom is and what the bottom looks like. So as we're watching rising markets going alongside of rising unemployment, we understand that we've got a structural problem that for our communities, we end up being on the back end and receiving the major brunt. Wes, I want to thank you for your time today. It's really good seeing you, and we appreciate your thoughts. This is something we're going to stay with, and we will get back to you very soon to talk about more about what you see for the need in those communities. Thank you. I would love that. Thank you. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. That's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Melody Hobson, the co-CEO of Aerial Investments and a board member at J.P. Morgan, Starbucks, and other companies, on what the last few days of civil unrest can teach corporate leaders. I was waiting for a corporate Kaepernick in reference to Colin Kaepernick and what he gave up for his beliefs, peacefully protesting the death of Black people in America unlawfully. Um, I have to say that corporate America talk is cheap. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Please subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.